0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with Sunshine Susanna Greer. Hey, Dr. Greer.
1: Sunshine Susanna. That's right. Here with Gloomy Gus Joe.
0: (laughs) Not at all. In fact, this is one I've been really looking forward to. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was looking at this database we've got, looking at these publications by our current and former grantees, and one name kept coming up in all these high-impact journals, Cell, yeah. Science, mm-hmm. Nature, Cell, Nature, Cancer Cell, yeah. over and over again, and, and today we got to speak with her, Dr. Joanna Joyce. She is, oh man. Amazing. Yeah, professor at the University of Lausanne, uh, full member of the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research. She is in Switzerland, living the good life, Shout out to my sister Tracy, who's also living the good life in Switzerland. They got they got things figured out over there. And one thing she's trying to figure out, Susanna, is a pretty terrible disease, but she's doing some great work.
1: Yeah, she. So Joanna is just. First of all, you guys are going to love her. She has an amazing, super fun accent, uh, which is much better than my southern accent, as Joe sure. tells me. But that's okay.
0: I know so, what you're talking about, Suzanne. You talk real good.
1: <laughs> I do talk real good. So she is just awesome. So, one of the things that I was so psyched to talk to Joanna about is that oh, we think about cancer so much as just the tumor, right? How are we going to eliminate the tumor? Are we going to, and we've, we've grown so much in our understanding that we can't just treat tumors with chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, right? We've become so much um, better with our targeted therapies and immunotherapies, but still, it's not just the tumor, right? It's these spaces that the tumors grow in. And this is where Joanna has this just brilliant expertise. So the spaces are called the tumor microenvironment. So Joanna is going to spend time explaining to us why does that matter, right? Why, why does it matter the space that a tumor grows in? And then what are we going to do about it? So if the space matters and she shares with us some really nice analogies that we can think about and you can just like look around, look around you, why does the space that you're in matter the house that you're living in, or if you're taking a walk, how do you impact that space? How does it impact you, right? So if that space matters, how do we take advantage of that? How do we understand it? And then think about it on an even bigger level. It's gonna be different in every patient and for every tumor. Okay, so that's step one. Step two, she studies the most challenging tumor there is. So she studies brain cancer. So if you take this super challenging space of trying to understand the spaces around tumors, how they're so different, they're different in every cancer and every person, and then you lay on top of that, that she studies it in brain cancer, I was like, we've got to talk to Joanna. You guys are going to learn so much. You're going to love her. So let's listen in. Well, good morning, Joanna.
2: How are you? Good morning, Susanna. I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
1: I'm great, and well, it's morning for me because I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. But I don't think it's morning for you. To, where are you?
2: <laughs> I'm I'm in Lausanne, in Switzerland, uh, next to Lake Geneva, and it's uh, it's afternoon for us here. Oh, well, that just sounds
1: spectacular. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. We are so excited to talk to you. So, if you're ready, we're gonna we're gonna start talking about the places that surround tumors as they grow. Are you ready to jump in? Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do it. So clinicians and scientists call these kind of spaces around tumors. And I I just want to kind of clarify this for our audience, this tumor environment or tumor microenvironment. So this isn't something we've talked about a ton on the podcast. So help us understand this. What what do we mean by
2: tumor microenvironment? Sure, yeah. So the tumor microenvironment, um, it basically refers to all of the components or the parts that make up a tumor in addition to the cancer cells themselves, of course. Um, This can include blood vessels, which provide nutrients and oxygen to the growing tumor, many different types of immune cells, including T cells, B cells, macrophages, neutrophils, dendritic cells, Stromal cells, including fibroblasts and parasites that can help generate a supportive niche for the tumor to develop within and and to grow. And all of these different cell types, they they produce, they release many, many different molecules into their local environment. And these include uh, growth factors, enzymes, exosomes, and uh, they use these factors to communicate with each other. And in fact all of these diverse normal cells are actually enmeshed with the cancer cells and so we can really more accurately think about this as an integral integrated part of the tumor not just in the surrounding tissue space and all of these different cell types they're in communication with each other and they influence each other's functions and so our goal is to try and either block this cellular conversation or redirect it towards a more constructive dialogue that helps fight the tumour and not support it. And one analogy that I think can be sometimes quite helpful is to compare this tumour microenvironment to a complex ecosystem. For example, what you would find in a mature forest. So here, the trees are nourished not only directly via the soil, but also through a complex root network with other plants, by the bacteria, fungi, lichen that live on the trees and underground, by water sources such as the streams that run through the forest, by the dissemination of seeds, by the wind or birds or animals and so on. And in this sense, when we start to consider the multiple levels of complexity and interconnectedness in such an ecosystem, I think that can really help us to appreciate the immense complexity of the tumour microenvironment.
1: You know, I, I loved, I love that analogy because one of the things that you said really struck me that when we, it was one of the very first things you said is that when, when we think about this community and this conversation that's going around, ar- around this tumor, this environment, you said that all of these components, these, these cells, these growth factors, this conversation, they're really an integral part of the tumor. And it's so complex but it's something that honestly i think most of us don't think about all the time and i loved your analogy because when i typically like go on a walk through a forest i don't think about all those things that you said yeah. that are supporting a forest right but they're they're crucial right i don't think yeah. about maybe the streams or the roots under the forest so hmm. yeah i love that um okay one of the things that I think is pretty true in your analogy, just as the seeds and the animals are all connected to the forest and feed the forest, not only are they interconnected, but maybe the forest is somehow remodeling that environment. So help me understand, do do tumors somehow do that as well? Like, do tumors kind of remodel this environment? So
2: if that's the case, tell us What do we know about that? Yeah, that's a great question, Susanna. So absolutely, we're finding that the tumor microenvironment is very much shaped or sculpted, you could say, by the precise nature of the cancer cells, including the specific oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes that are mutated, activated or silenced in any given cancer. And this can result in quite different compositions as well as functions of tumor microenvironment cells, depending on the underlying genetics of the tumor and likely also the epigenetic or the non-DNA alterations. And to add to this complexity, the tumor microenvironment can also change dynamically or evolve as the disease progresses and potentially spreads or metastasizes to organs other than where it originated. And the tumor microenvironment can also be altered Following different therapeutic interventions. So, we really need to consider the original, perhaps now simplistic notion from the very early days of this field, um, which was that targeting the tumor microenvironment could, in principle, represent a one size fits all approach that could be applied across many different cancers or organ sites. And this was certainly uh, a, a, an attractive. Or appealing hypothesis conceptually, but we now really, really do understand that it's clearly far more complex than we initially um, had hoped. Ah,
1: you're right. So not only is it more complex, but it's, as you said, it seems like there's, there's two giant pieces involved. And you use some words that we may not all think about all the time, like oncogenes. And then you rephrase a little bit to say, it has to do with the tumor genetics. So let's just spend maybe just 30 seconds kind of explain to our audience, what do you mean by that? Because then i want to spend some time talking about therapies. How would a tumor's genetics maybe shape its potential microenvironment? Can you give us maybe an example?
2: Yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's a great question. And I have to be honest, that's something that we're trying to wrestle right now. So what we can say is that there are correlations depending on the tumor's genetics and this tumor microenvironment. So we know that, you know, for example, um, an activating mutation in, in an oncogene that will result in hyperactive signaling of a growth factor signaling pathway might be associated with a specific composition of different immune cells, let's say, but we don't fully understand how to kind of connect those dots so how do we um how do we go from a specific um series of or, or or collection of genetic events in the cancer cells to the consequences on the immediately surrounding cells of the microenvironment but also the systemic changes so how does that impact the immune system in the body of the patient and these are, are, you know, we're just at the beginnings of trying to understand this. This is something that we're really actively exploring in my lab right now, but I, I can't say right now what's, what's, you know, where cause and effect is there.
1: But, but for our audience, one of the things that you are maybe suggesting that we're starting to think about is that for a tumor that maybe has genetic alterations that cause it to maybe divide cause the cells to divide super quickly yes. and cause changes in the immune response, that's a change in the environment of the tumor. Um, is exactly. that fair to say you're seeing yes. those kind of changes? Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. So the other thing that you mentioned is that when thinking about tumors changing or remodeling their microenvironment is that it it can change the way a, a, or a tumor's microenvironment can impact the way a tumor responds to a particular therapy? Could you maybe give us, expand a little bit on that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's an, another area that, that really has, has uh, kind of seen an explosion of new information on the, in the last several years. Um, and so the, the tumor microenvironment can have a really major impact on how a given cancer responds to therapy in a number of different ways. So, first of all, the pre existing tumor microenvironment um, can contribute to the regulation of the therapeutic response. In some cases, that may enhance therapeutic efficacy, but in most cases that we and others have looked at to date, um, those changes in the tumor microenvironment can actually contribute towards resistance to therapy. Um, and that kind of leads to the second point, which is that um, in addition to, to the cancer cells, which of course we're trying to kill with different therapeutic interventions, for example, radiation and chemotherapy, the microenvironment itself can be quite profoundly altered by these interventions um, in some cases and not really surprising uh, um, ways. So we know that you know, killing cancer cells is going to result in an influx of immune cells from the circulation, including macrophages, this is exactly what we would expect. Those cells are going to rush in to eat up, move the dead cancer cells, remove the debris. However, these therapies, including radiation therapy and chemotherapy, can actually also activate those macrophages. And in some instances, that can endow them with certain cancer-supportive functions. And as a consequence, if not all of the cancer cells are killed by the initial treatment, um, the ones that remain can sometimes hijack or co-opt immune cells, including macrophages, to paradoxically promote the survival of those residual or dormant or sleeping cancer cells. And over time, that may ultimately lead to tumor recurrence. And so when we think about treating cancer, We need to absolutely take an integrated approach and devise therapies not only to target the tumor cells but also uh, key components or key parts of the tumor microenvironment and we really need to have a holistic perspective when approaching this and I would also say that we should extend that perspective beyond the organ in which the tumor is growing and also consider the numerous systemic effects that happen in patients Um, What we sometimes call the macro environment, if you will.
1: Okay, so interesting. I mean, it it should be so obvious that when we use utilize a therapy, that that therapy is going to impact more than just the tumor, right? It impacts everything around the tumor. But what what maybe is not so obvious is that some of those impacts, so I guess the thing that we've always kind of thought about historically is that things like chemotherapy have negative side effects. So we think about chemotherapy having off target, we would say negative effects, like killing cells that maybe we don't mean to kill. Like you think about um, hair follicles, so we lose maybe our hair. But what you are suggesting is that in that tumor microenvironment, some treatments we are discovering have unintended consequences in that environment that can perhaps be tumor supportive. And from going back to your analogy of the forest, one thing I was thinking of as you were talking about is what, what if you were trying to get rid of a weed in the forest? And so you used a pesticide to kill off the weed. And what if that pesticide maybe did kill the weed, but didn't kill a neighboring weed, and or allowed a you know uh, something you know some I don't know a, a weed neighbor to grow that that or or maybe was a fertilizer for something else that you you didn't particularly want to grow, and it was an unintended consequence that we just wouldn't know. Um, and maybe you wouldn't see right away. So one of the questions that I, I'm i so fascinated by, and one of the reasons we really wanted to talk to you on the pod, is that as we begin to take all of these things into consideration, that we struggle as scientists and clinicians to treat cancer and now we're beginning to understand that it's not just the tumor, it's not just the cancer, it's the environment in which the tumor grows in and all of these different components that you shared with us that are so important, the immune cells, the stromal cells, this kind of supportive environment that the tumor is growing in, and the communication, all of that is so important. So taking all of those complicated factors, your lab studies one of the most challenging types of tumors and all of those aspects so you study tumors that grow in the brain so i wanted our listeners to understand kind of the background of why i was so interested to talk to you so help us to understand what's happening um, when we think about the environment that surrounds tumors that grow in the brain
2: yeah, so I, I became really interested in, in specifically investigating uh, the brain tumor microenvironment a number of years ago, in part because, as, as you probably know, Susanna, the prognosis for patients following diagnosis of certain cancers that develop within the brain or spread to this organ from other locations in the body is unfortunately quite poor. And another major reason was at the time that we initiated this research program in my lab, Um, As a field, we knew very little about the brain tumor microenvironment, certainly by comparison to other organ sites that we and others were investigating, including the breast, pancreas and lung. And so I thought this was really a critical area to explore. And we know that the brain is really quite a unique organ. There are multiple tissue resident cells that are only found in the brain, including astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, microglia and so on. And in addition, there's the blood brain barrier, which is essential for shielding our brain from toxins, from uh, inflammatory cells, from infectious agents and so on. But this barrier can actually be breached in cancer. um, And this can result in the entry of metastatic cells that spread from elsewhere in the body, for example. And so um, the, the brain per se you know is a fascinating organ it's been considered for for you know decades centuries to be an immune privileged organ and, and in, indeed in in certain aspects it is and so we thought this was really um an incredibly important but also challenging microenvironment in in, in which to kind of you know dig into this um and and rather than kind of you know go away from that challenge, we decided to, to tackle it head-on and to, to kind of recognize that, that there are um, unique um, challenges, let's say, in understanding brain tumors because, of course, accessibility of getting uh, tissue, but also challenges in, in treating brain cancers in part because of the blood-brain barrier that, that I just mentioned. Um, and we thought, you know, for, for patients, we needed to to overcome those challenges, or at least try to. And certainly, we needed to, to uh, increase our, our knowledge about the immense complexity of the brain tumor microenvironment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I think that you shared that is so interesting, so not only are there, I mean, cells that only hang out in the brain, so it's this special kind of super cool hotel that, only the super elite can be in and then you've got like this guard area like these like guards that stand at the door and make sure you've got the special pass to get in which is the blood-brain barrier but but what makes it even more interesting and challenging from the cancer cancer aspect is that there are tumors that form in the brain and then there are tumors that start elsewhere and move to the brain and what you have recently studied, just an absolutely fantastic and what I think will be a really impactful study showing that different brain cancers have really different environments, microenvironments, based on whether or not the tumors actually started in the brain or moved there. So they metastasized there. So can you share, I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about what you learned.
2: Yeah, sure. So we, we were very curious to know whether the, the immune microenvironment of cancers that develop and grow solely within the brain, including gliomas of different grades or um, you know, different aggressiveness, let's say, um, was similar or different to cancers that arise in other organs, um, including the breast, um, the skin in the case of melanoma, lung cancers. These are the major um, primary tumor types that, that, that uh, seed metastases to the brain um, and and they have to do this by crossing the blood-brain barrier that we just talked about. And we thought it was really important to answer this question um, with the ultimate goal to develop more effective therapies and specifically more effective immunotherapies. We need to know the composition and the function of immune cells in these different brain cancers, what we often term the immune landscape in order to then have any hope of developing more effective immune-based therapies. And so what we found in this study is precisely by comparing all these different types of brain cancer side by side, um, we were able to to directly look at the landscape of about 15 distinct immune cell types uh, in each tumour sample. And it's really important to say that we obtained those samples directly from the operating room from patients that were remarkably generous in in terms of uh, uh, consenting to be part of this study, and, and I want to thank all of those patients immensely um, for that generosity, because without that, we would we would not have been able to um, to uncover. Uh, the the, uh, landscapes within these different cancers. Um, And we found that it was remarkably complex and also quite different depending on the type of cancer that we were analyzing. So, for example, we found that the dominant immune cell type in low-grade gliomas were microglia. These are the resident macrophages of the brain. That wasn't really surprising. While in high-grade, more aggressive glioblastomas, there was a substantial infiltration of immune cells coming from the blood circulation, including um, monocyte-derived macrophages. And then in metastases that spread from breast, lung uh, cancers or melanomas, the immune landscape was considerably more diverse compared to these gliomas that that develop and stay within the brain. There were many more T cells, for example, and that gives us uh, quite some hope that for these specific tumors, We can now try to find strategies that enhance the cancer killing functions of these T cells um, and use that to eradicate, hopefully, metastases in the brain. And and really by by doing this in in a comprehensive and integrated way, we were able to to reveal those differences that, that I don't think we would have been able to do if we'd, you know, looked at studies separated, you know, five years apart or whatever, or just looked at, at one type of, of, of tumor. Uh, it was really revealed. These landscapes were revealed by looking at them in, in parallel. Oh,
1: sure. Well, okay. I have, I have so many questions, but we only have time for a few. So let me just ask the ones that I think will be most interesting to our listeners. So first of all, oh, my heart. My heart is just so so big and full to those patients, and mm-hmm. thank you. I just I, I i cannot say thank you enough to them. Mm-hmm. So to them and and their consent, um, what a gift! What a gift to to um, to every cancer patient. So, um, absolutely, just have a, mo- a moment and say thank yes. you, and, and yes. to have a heart yes. that is very full. Um, yes. So let me ask you about. Let, let's talk about the gliomas first. So, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that language, so you talked about low-grade and high-grade gliomas. So, maybe let me let me phrase that in a way that we would say a, a lower grade glioma. Um, what, what could you put that in in words that might everyone might be able to understand? Low, just really quickly, a uh, low grade versus a high grade glioma. How would you differentiate those?
2: Yeah. So so in in Um, Let's try and make it as straightforward as I can. Uh, You have to bear with us as scientists, we're very used to to kind of falling back on our jargon. Um, So low-grade versus high-grade gliomas, I think that the the simplest distinction to make between those is that low-grade gliomas are proliferating more slowly. They're less invasive than high-grade gliomas. They also have a much better prognosis for patients. High-grade gliomas, um, by contrast, um, are, are really quite rapidly um, dividing and growing cancers. They infiltrate um, really throughout much of the brain, um, and they are, are aggressive and they're challenging to, uh, to treat. So the, the prognosis for those, those two types of gliomas that have, again, coming back to what we talked about earlier, very, you know, quite different uh, underlying um, genetic alterations um, that results in, in, in quite a different uh, prognosis for, for patients diagnosed with those types of, of gliomas.
1: Ah, okay, thank you, Joanna. And so I'm imagining what might have been surprising to you was that the more aggressive the glioma the more different the immune cell population and all kinds of different immune cells were showing up as the gliomas became more aggressive and immune cells that normally aren't in the brain because of that guard to the yes. brain right the, the the blood-brain barrier keeps immune cells out because we don't want inflammation in the brain so was exactly. that surprising
2: yes. to you that was surprising it was surprising also because of course you know I, i'm sure many of the listeners here When you think of the immune system and cancer, you would be right in thinking that um, a correlation between more immune cells should be good for the patient and bad for the cancer. Um, And what what we're seeing and what, you know, many, many people in in the greater um, tumor microenvironment immunotherapy field are seeing, is that that's not always the case. Um, And so, More is not necessarily better in in this uh, analogy for the patient and that's because the functions of those immune cells are uh, impacted both by um, the underlying cancer, the type of cancer that we're looking at, but also the tissue in which that cancer either uh, arises and develops or which it, it spreads to. Um, And so, you know, if we think about T cells, for example, these are uh, key, um, you know, components, key soldiers of the immune system, um, which are generally um, engaged to to fight cancer cells, to seek out and kill cancer cells. Um, But what we found is that while there were actually, you know, surprising number of T cells in, um, in, in brain metastases, Um, By definition of the fact that we had isolated um, those samples from from cancers that needed to be surgically operated on, that meant that the immune system did not have this cancer under control. It wasn't seeing the cancer cells for whatever reason. Um, It's also possible that that by virtue of being within the brain, um, those cells are further protected uh, by being seen by the immune system. And so that was really surprising to us, the the complexity and the diversity of all these different types of immune cells. Um, In some of these cancers comprising, you know, 40, 50% of the tumor mass was not the cancer cells, it was these immune cells. And so that really opens up so many questions that we are actively um, exploring in the lab now to understand why are there functions um, being blocked, and, and obviously, of course, how can we uh, how can we relieve those blocks?
1: Yeah, that and that was going to be my next question. Is that I mean, despite these enormous challenges, what what you are understanding is that the diversity of the cells that are in these tumor microenvironments and the complexity, despite kind of this being like a moment of Oh my gosh! It also opens up enormous possibilities and opportunities. So, I think the clinical implications are huge. Um, we're now understanding that we can't think about tumors without thinking about the spaces they grow in. Just like we can't think about trees without this ecosystem that they're growing in. Um, you know, the the roots that support them. The streams that support them, the seeds, the birds, the animals—we we just can't think about nothing. None of us, none of us is alone. Um, we all are growing and being maintained and supported in spaces, including tumors. So help us understand what what do you think are the most important steps that your lab and then other labs need to think about as we work to translate data like yours to the clinic?
2: Yeah, I think really probably one of the most important considerations is that we have to tackle this immense complexity head on. We can't reasonably expect that by only trying to target the blood vessels alone or only trying to target the macrophages alone, That we're going to be able to effectively treat cancer in the long term and so this really necessitates an integrated what we would say a systems level approach to understanding and ultimately treating cancer um, one that we're increasingly taking for our studies in in my lab and many others are too and so if we come back to that analogy of the forest ecosystem if we want to destroy our forest and of course (laughs) we don't but if in, in theory we did, we, we not only need to raise it to the ground, we need to go underground. We need to eliminate all of that interconnected network. And the same applies to the tumor microenvironment. But the challenge here is not only trying to find what we would say the critical um, you know, weak spots or nodes, the, the, the points in this interconnected network, that that we can press on to kind of let the whole thing collapse. We need to find what those critical connection points are. But from a clinical perspective, we need to balance the reality of combinatorial targeting of these different normal cells, along with the cancer cells, of course, always in in all of these considerations, with the potential for side effects that can be detrimental to the patient. And I think that's going to be um, really an additional challenge, and one that um, too often in the lab we, we can get very excited about trying to understand um, sure, how this sure. communication is working. And, and we sometimes forget the reality of what these therapies do to the patient as a whole. And I think, again, coming back to something that, 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 that I mentioned earlier microenvironment versus macroenvironment. We need to really expand our, 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 our studies, expand our consideration to, to not just be thinking about the tumor as a whole, but to be thinking about the patient as a whole and appreciating what each one of these different interventions does to that person. Uh, and I think we cannot lose sight of that. that, that that's extremely important.
1: Yeah, I loved you. Yeah. You've written so many beautiful papers, and I read recently a manuscript that you were involved in that really focused on, and when you said macro, I did want to clear, just help our listeners understand exactly what you just said, that it's thinking about the whole patient. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on not only the patient as a whole, but we're all different (laughs) And every day we experience different things. I'm going to probably eat different things today than you are, and I'm going to have different experiences. My activity level is going to be different than yours. Um, I'm going to have different levels of. You know, exposure to the sun. Um, So when we think about. That that adds a whole different level of complexity to considerations of the impact of therapies, to the impact of side effects. And then we go all the way down to this micro tumor environment that you've so beautifully explained to us today. So I'd love for, have a couple more questions, but I'd love for you just to maybe share your, your thesis on how do we move forward as we begin to think about this microtumor environment and the macro environment that we as humans are, are, are very differently exposed to on a daily basis.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point to, to start closing with, Susanna, because um, again, as a field, we're finding that diet, exercise, obesity, systemic inflammation, metabolic syndrome, the microbiome, all of these, you know, critical integral aspects of who we are as people indeed have a major effect on the tumour microenvironment and different lifestyles can impact the number and the quality let's say of our immune cells also the immune system becomes less rigorous as we grow older and so that's also a really important consideration for immune-based therapies Uh, And I expect that this is going to be an area of very intriguing and important discoveries in in the coming years with direct consequences for how we treat very, very diverse patient populations.
1: You know, I love what you shared earlier in our conversation that we're now understanding more and more about, of course, immune cells. I mean, immunologists is Joe gets sick and tired of me reminding you all, <laughs> but, but we now know that more isn't always better regarding yes. immune cells, but we, we do know that understanding, both when it comes to immune cells and immune responses is always better. And I, I, I love your point that um, understanding how all of these different uh, environmental um, factors impact each of us, um, it's going to just make things better. So thank you. Thank you for the role that you're playing in this space. We are we are grateful. Um, you are not funded by the American Cancer Society now, but you were. And this is an American Cancer Society podcast. So I would love to for you to share with our listeners um, if the American Cancer Society funding did have an impact on your career.
2: Yes, it, it certainly did. Um, I was very fortunate to receive a scholar award from the American Cancer Society. A few years after I started my lab. That was when um, I was at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York um, and that very generous funding from the American Cancer Society supported several of our early findings relating to the importance of specific immune cells uh, including macrophages that we've spent some time talking about here today um, and that funding allowed us to dig into the mechanisms by which cancer cells subvert or co-opt the functions of macrophages in breast and pancreatic cancers, uh, changing them from being tumour suppressive to tumour supportive, in part through their secretion of invasion promoting enzymes, for example. And then we were able to build upon that early foundation of critical support and the knowledge that resulted from it, and that was was really um, uh, instrumental, I would say, in subsequently expanding our research program to other cancers, including the brain that we spent a lot of time talking about here today, but also to other cell types in the tumor microenvironment in addition to macrophages. Um, so I would say that, that uh, funding from the ACS had a very important impact on my research and by extension, my early career as an independent scientist. And in this uh, respect, I think it's really... Um, I I hope, (laughs) good for the listeners to hear that this program is really wonderful because it provides generous support over three years to to young researchers who are just starting to build their own independent program. And it's really helped uh, launch the careers of of many wonderful scientists. And so um, I want to thank you, uh, everybody who's listening, for everything that you do um, to make that possible.
1: Well, thank you, Joanne. I'm so excited to hear that the ACS was part of that foundational support. We are so incredibly excited about what you're doing now. And I think my last question goes to our most special listeners, and those are those who are cancer patients and survivors and caregivers. Is there a message you would like to share with um, these audience members in particular?
2: Yes, um, I'd like to first thank you all directly for listening to our conversation today. And I want to express really my immense gratitude for the many different ways in which you support the American Cancer Society, including through your volunteering, fundraising, advocacy for patients, and also, as we we just touched on, in your um, many different ways that you support the research um, that we're all um, uh, striving to do. I'd also like you to know that as scientists, we're really passionate and dedicated and relentless about our research. And we want nothing more uh, than for the knowledge or the scientific insights that we gain in the lab to ultimately have an impact on patient treatment. And this is really, uh, I would say probably the most strong motivation that one can have in life. It's, it's, I feel an immense privilege to be a scientist and particularly a cancer researcher. And there is nothing uh, that motivates me more Um, than the the longer term goals that that, that we hope to uh, achieve. And I can also understand that that maybe it seems from the outside that scientific progress can be slow or not fast enough when you're a patient diagnosed with cancer or a family member um, of a patient. And I really want to reassure you um, that the cancer research field is advancing at an incredible pace right now. And we're 100% and more committed to doing our very best to alleviate the burden of cancer in the coming years.
1: Well said, Joanna. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute delight and best of luck to you. We're um, behind you all the way. Thank
2: you so much, Susanna. Thank you to everyone who's, who's listened today as well.